0: Colossians chapter 4, I'm going to read verses 2 through 6, and uh, this is our text. So the unit of our text is Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. Paul writes this, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So obviously, we're reaching the end of this letter. And to 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 reach back and to kind of gather for ourselves what we've covered up to this point, it's been obvious that Paul has been in this letter to the Colossians, this little uh, new church plant in, in Asia Minor, what is modern-day Turkey. He's exhorting them about what true maturity is, and he's he's drawn out the implications of the gospel, this message about Jesus and who he is. And and this news, this message, uh, this proclamation about Jesus is so great. It has so many implica- implications. It's so powerful. It shatters death, and it brings life. It's, it's so relevant that this message that Paul has been unfolding, unfolding implications of this message, it, it impacts the way we view everything in life. It transforms our relationships. It informs our approach to sex and anger, the way we speak to each other, the way we live, live as wives and husbands, uh, whether we're in authority or under authority. So the, the message that Paul is communicating is a message that has this massive impact, it impacts every part of life, and the question is then, how does this message get communicated? All right, how does a message this important, this powerful, this impacting, how are we going to ever communicate this message? Well, think about with me, how do important messages get communicated? Like when the president wants to deliver a message, he holds a press conference, or sometimes he's he's seated at his desk in the Oval Office, and sometimes he has these these uh, golden curtains behind him, and giving this the sense of grandeur and importance to what he's saying. So, how would God, if the gospel is a message from God, how would God deliver this message of such importance? The, the the thing that's astonishing to us is that God, the way He delivers this message, the message of the gospel that Paul has been unfolding here, it is not through a miraculous vision. It's not through um, writing something in the sky. It's not even through sending angelic beings who are stunning in their splendor. God communicates the the message of the gospel through ordinary people like you and me. That's how God does it. And, And so what Paul is getting at here in this text is this question. How does the gospel get communicated? Uh, It it makes sense that Paul would return to this topic because he started with this topic at the very beginning of the letter. If you flip back to chapter 1 in Colossians, Paul has started out his letter by talking about the spread of the gospel. So in verse 6, he says that the gospel has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it's bearing fruit and increasing. And, and Paul is thanking God for this, this fact. And so now he comes to the end of his letter, and he's talking about the same thing. The gospel is spreading, and it's increasing. But how does it advance? The gospel advances through ordinary people whose lives have been changed in an extraordinary way. Now, think about this in our context, okay? We're in our homes. You're sitting in your living room or maybe your family room, maybe, maybe the kitchen table. And we're talking about how the gospel spreads at a time when we're trying to protect ourselves from a virus spreading. Like, we are barricading ourselves, practicing social distancing. And now we're talking about the power of a message that transcends and obliterates any obstacle whatsoever. This is ironic on a number of levels. How can we, even in being distanced from each other, even in having these these social barriers, how can we communicate the continue to communicate the message of the gospel? I mean, this this passage right here has incredible significance for us right now, in our context, even with the uh, the spread of the coronavirus. And the answer to that question then is given in three ways. And I want you to see these from the text. Uh, this is a study of verses two through six of Colossians chapter four, and I want you to see how it is that the gospel advances. And these three ways are gonna form the structure of the sermon, so you know where I'm going, okay? So the gospel advances through the way we pray, through the way we live, and through the way we speak. Gospel advances through our prayers, our lifestyle, and our speech. And you see very clearly the gospel advanced through our prayers in verses two through four. You see that Paul is talking about prayer the, the manner of prayer, and then the matter of prayer in verses uh, 2 through 4. So the prayer, uh, and then also the gospel advances in the way that we live. The metaphor of walking refers to lifestyle, and he's telling his people, to his readers, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. That is those who haven't entered into the household of faith. They don't believe the gospel. Paul is saying you walk in wisdom toward them. So the gospel advances in the way that we pray, and that's in verses two through four, in the way that we live in verse five, and we'll look at those, and then in verse six, in the way that we speak, all right? And so let's get right into that, how the gospel advances in the way that we pray. And Paul reveals the manner of our prayer and the matter of our prayer. So let me read these verses to you. Paul says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So there's these three terms here, continue steadfastly, that's one verb in in the Greek language, watchful and thanksgiving. okay? So those three terms define the manner of our of our praying. Continue steadfastly, watchful, and with thanksgiving. So let me explain this idea of continuing steadfastly. So what does it mean to continue steadfastly? In prayer. Well, this verb is used elsewhere in the New Testament and it illuminates the meaning of it. There's one particularly uh, helpful place in which Paul in the book of Romans is talking about government leaders and how they do their work. So Paul is saying that these government leaders, they are continuing steadfastly in their work. Obviously, they do a good job and they are excited about their, uh, their work. This idea of continuing steadfastly means you don't want to quit. Like you want to keep doing it and you want to keep on doing it well. To, to illustrate, uh, recently we've been doing some remodels to a home that we uh, moved into. And and I was doing the baseboard trim in a room in our house. And I was only able to get so far and then I had to stop for a particular reason. I had to, I had to take, take a break from it. But every time I'd come back into that room, I'd see the baseboard molding. I just put it along the floor, but I hadn't nailed it in yet. And it, it just, it, it pained me. To, to see that job unfinished. I wanted to continue steadfastly in it. I didn't wanna stop. Some of you know how that is with work. You're, you're a hard worker. You like doing a job well done. You like persisting it until in it until it's done. That's the meaning of this word, to continue steadfastly. It pains you to walk away from a job un, unfinished. This is the way that we're supposed to pray. We are supposed to pray in a way that we want to see the job done. We are going to work at it. We're going to labor at it. We're going to sweat in it until the job is done. That's what it means to continue steadfastly in prayer. As I was thinking about this word and continuing steadfastly, I thought this. How often do we quit praying because we don't see the results? We, we quit praying too soon. Like, we should have kept praying. We should have kept laboring in prayer. But because we lacked the faith, because we gave up, because we thought, I'm not seeing results, I don't understand the point of this, so I'm going to stop. We stopped too soon. It reminded me of a picture book story I've read to my children. Uh, Most of the details of this story have escaped me, but I, I remember this. The story is about these kids that were digging for treasure outside their house. And, and from the view of the, the reader, you can see this, this lateral view of, of the ground, really deep, and you can see them tunneling down and tunneling down and going this way and this way. And what you can also see as the reader is you can see a treasure here, like a big diamond right here. And, and they would tunnel down and they go right past the diamond. And as the reader like, oh, they just missed the treasure. Or they would the, the kids would tunnel down and they tunnel down. And, and, they're, and then they'd start turning, and there was a diamond right here. And they would say, we're obviously going the wrong direction. And so they'd go further, and they'd miss it. And the story ends with the kids. They went really, really, really far down. And there was this massive diamond, bigger than their house. And they were just that far away from it. But they thought, there's nothing here. There's nothing to be found. And so they gave up. And as, as the, the viewer, you're thinking, no, just keep digging. I wonder how often we're like that with prayer. We're, we're praying for something. And at some point we say, what's the point? I give up. How often, because we fail to continue steadfastly in prayer, do we lose the benefits of prayer? This is the point of a parable that Jesus told in Luke chapter 18. He told this parable about this, this unjust judge who was a, a really cranky sort of guy, didn't like people, and a widow was kept on coming to him over and over and over again. And finally, this cranky uh, sociopath Gave in just because the widow was so so obstinate and and so uh, insistent, and Jesus says, if a judge that's cranky and sociopathic is going to relent to a a, a intentionally and and uh, um, insistent widow, don't you think that God wants to answer your prayer? So don't give up in prayer. The manner of our prayer, as we think in terms of our witness and communication of the gospel, is a manner that is steadfast. We also have this word watchful watchful so the word translated watchful again to get you the big picture we're looking at how is the gospel communicated the gospel advances the gospel is given in our prayers and our prayers are steadfast but also they're they're watchful we see that in verse two being watchful in it now the 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 meaning of this word here means is simple it means to stay awake now why in the world would paul tell people that they need to stay awake in prayer it's we know what it's like Someone says, okay, let's pray. You're seated in a comfortable chair. You close your eyes, and then someone starts talking, and and how easy it is to feel sleepy. classic example of sleeping during prayer is that of the disciples. At the moment of Christ's agony in the garden, when he was facing the most intense loss and pain and rejection greater than any human ever has or will, His closest friends couldn't stay awake with him. I think there's a deeper significance, though, than just getting sleepy in times of prayer. And I think it's this. Too often, prayer becomes a matter of routine for us. Prayer becomes just something that we do, but we're not earnestly engaged in it. I mean, how many times has this happened? When when you're gathered around, maybe you're going to pray for a meal, and someone says, let's pray, and, and then you prayed, and then a moment later, someone says, have we prayed yet? And then the other people are like, "Yes, you're the one who prayed." And we all laugh, and it's it's a little humorous. but but actually, it speaks to the fact that sometimes we take prayer so lightly. It's such a matter of routine that we're not urgent in it. We're not alert in it. What will wake us up from the lethargy that we tend to experience in prayer? It's this, it's the urgency of the needs around us. Like I I never felt sleepy when I'm praying. I never felt sleepy when the need is urgent and and pressing around me. When I was a teenager, um, my aunt and uncle gave me a book uh, that has deeply impacted me. Uh, And it was a book by John Piper called Let the Nations Be Glad, The Supremacy of God in Missions. There is a chapter in that book. And it's about prayer. And this one metaphor just grabbed me. Uh, and I think it's it's so appropriate that, that I'll actually read this section to you. Um, Piper writes in this, uh, in this book on prayer, on missions about prayer, he says, Prayer is the accomplishment of a wartime mission. It is as, it is as though the field commander, Jesus, called in the troops, gave them a crucial mission, go and bear fruit handed each of them a personal transmitter code to the frequency of the general's headquarters and said, comrades, the general has a mission for you. He aims to see it accomplished. And to that end, he has authorized me to give each of you personal access to him through these transmitters. If you say, stay true to his mission and seek his victory first, he will always be as close as your transmitter to give tactical advice and to send air cover when you need it. And then Piper asked this question. But what have millions of Christians done? We have stopped believing we are in a war. No urgency. No watching. No vigilance. No strategic planning. Just easy peace and prosperity. And what did we do with the walkie-talkie? That is prayer. We tried to rig it up as an intercom in our houses and cabins and boats and cars Not to call for firepower in conflict with a mortal enemy, but to ask for more comforts in the den. I think this is one reason why prayer malfunctions. is because instead of seeing prayer as something that we need in conflict because of the urgency of the situation, we use prayer to call for more comforts. Paul is saying this. There is a battle. Every moment of time is embattled territory that is either won or lost for the gospel. Every every encounter and every relationship you have is embattled opportunity, are embattled opportunities that are either won or lost for the gospel. So pray and pray earnestly and continue steadfastly in prayer and stay alert in it. There's a third term that informs the manner of our prayer. And we see that also in verse 2 when Paul says, being watchful in it, and here it is, with thanksgiving. And so we have these three terms, continue steadfastly, being watchful, stay awake, understand the urgency of the situation, and then thanksgiving. Now, I like to view these three as working this way. These these three, the the steadfastness of prayer, being watchful in prayer, being alert in prayer, and having this gratitude in prayer are kind of like the three legs of a stool, of the stool of prayer. So you, you can't sit on a one-legged stool. It's not going to hold you up very easily. And a two-legged stool is going to be a problem too. You need three legs to your stool to hold you up. Now, here, here's how this works. If you view prayer as just that concentrated of time when you ask for things, it's going to be like trying to sit on a one-legged stool of prayer. You're you're going to become frustrated if that's all you conceive of prayer as. But but think of it this way. It's not just those concentrated times when it's you and God praying and and asking for things. You do have those concentrated times. You do have prayer like that. But added to that is an alertness. Okay, you've prayed, and now you're alert, and you're you're thinking, okay, where's the answer to this prayer? You're, You're on the lookout. You're you're expecting God to answer your prayers, okay? That's the alertness. And then when he does, you thank him for it. So with with those three legs of that stool in place, you are ready to have a robust prayer life that can serve to advance the gospel. You pray and you ask God for certain things. And then after you pray, you're alert for the answer to come. And when the answer comes, you pray again. And that motivates you. You thank him for that. And that motivates you to pray again. So you pray again, and you're alert. And you're alert. You see the answer. You see the answer, and you think. And you pray again. See, this is how our prayers can move forward and advance the gospel in our world around us. The gospel advances through ordinary people whose lives have been transformed in an extraordinary way, who pray in extraordinary ways. And this prayer, the manner of our prayer, is described here in verse 2. Now, we're still on prayer as a a way in which the gospel is advanced, but we're going to now talk about the matter of prayers. We talked about the manner of prayer is defined by those three terms, the uh, steadfastness, the alertness, and and the thanksgiving. But now what are we to pray for? That's the matter of prayer. This is what Paul is talking about in verse 3. He says, at the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Now, what Paul is asking for the people to pray for him about is quite surprising. Because get the picture. Here Paul is. He's, he's, in, he's in prison. Okay. He's quarantined. But it's not self-quarantined. It's, it's enforced, and it's not just quarantine. He is chained, he's locked. It, it could even be that as he was, and the typical way that Paul would do this is he would dictate the letter to uh, a, a, someone who would write it down, called an amanuensis. So Paul is is speaking to someone else what should be written, and he's possibly even speaking what should be written through a a uh, door that has bars over it. And now if, if Paul... Or if you were in that situation and you had an opportunity to get a letter sent off to Christian friends, what, what do you think your main prayer request would be? If you are to talk about a door in your prayer request, and if I were to talk about a door, my talk about that door would be the door of the prison that has me locked in. Ask the Lord to open it up. I mean, he did this for Peter, right? Peter was in prison, and miraculously, the doors of the prison were open, and Peter was allowed to escape. And you'd think that Paul is going to say, please pray that this prison door come flying open so that I could have the freedom to get out and preach the gospel. But instead, Paul prays for something different, and this, is, this surprises us. When he mentions a door, he doesn't talk about the door to his prison. He's saying, we want more doors for opportunities. Whether or not the prison door stays closed, the, the gospel, Paul says, must go on. I think this is incredible. The matter of prayer is the advance of the gospel. And this takes us to what, it's a paradoxical principle, I'll call it the the principle of the prison. Or we can, in our context, call it the principle of of the quarantine, the principle of the prison. And that is this, that sometimes God allows impossible looking circumstances, impossible obstacles, impossible boundaries. Sometimes God allows these impossible boundaries to show that his word has no boundaries. God, this is the the principle of the prison, that sometimes God uses these obstacles that look insurmountable to show us that there is no obstacle that can keep his word bound. This is what Paul is talking about in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He says this, He's exhorting his protege Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I'm suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Uh, The word of God cannot be bound by chains. It's not bound by prison cells. It's not bound by court orders. It's not bound by persecution. It's not bound by any other scheme or anything else. The word of God is boundless. The gospel cannot be stopped. So when Paul prays and when he asks the Colossians to pray, the prayer request is this, that the door for the word might be open. The gospel is a message that truly goes viral. And somehow through prayer, we have the opportunity to advance it. How does the gospel advance? How does this message with such radical, life-transformative implications, how does it move forward? It moves forward as God's people pray. Now, I refer to a book I read when I was a teenager. There's another, as I was preparing for this, there's another book that I I remembered from my teenage years, and that was a book that my mother insisted that I read. It was a biography of a man named Jonathan Goforth, and the book is called Goforth of China. And uh, Jonathan Goforth was a missionary to China, and there was a particular province that he wanted to enter so that he can share the gospel. And at this time, a great missionary, Hudson Taylor, who uh, had had pioneered uh, many mission efforts in China, was, was still alive. Hudson Taylor was older at this time. And Hudson Taylor, as this old veteran missionary, learned that this younger missionary was entering a province that was very difficult to enter. And so Hudson Taylor wrote this letter to Jonathan Goforth. And he said this, this this is Hudson Taylor writing to the young missionary, Jonathan Goforth, who's going into a difficult province. He says, we as a mission have sought for 10 years to enter the province of Honan from the south and have only just now succeeded. Brother, if you would enter that province, you must go forward on your knees. This is an important principle for us to get that if the gospel is going to advance, it will advance as people advance it on their knees. As Christians pray that God would open up, just explode the, the doors of opportunities so that the gospel can flow through and, and people hear of what Jesus has done for them. That's what we should be praying for as a church. The gospel advances through our prayers, but also the gospel advances through through our conduct. Now I spent most time most of the time of these these divisions on prayer so don't worry it's not that all three of my points are going to last this long. Uh, we are going to we just have these two more dealing with the gospel advancing through our conduct and the gospel advancing through our speech. So the gospel advances through our conduct. we see this in verse 5. particularly our conduct, our lifestyle that is wise and strategic. So Paul says in verse 5, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. And there there are two components of the conduct, the kind of conduct that advances the gospel, and it's conduct that that is wise and it's strategic. It should be the wisdom of Christians, Christians' wise behavior that commends itself to outsiders. Let your walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Now, the wisdom of believers is of a different quality completely. Why? Because we operate our lives according to an eternal standard, right? The the standards that we place for ourselves, our objectives and our goals, our values are not values that are bound by a lifestyle that may be 75, 80, 90 years old, right? Our values are bound by eternal values with an eternal world in view. So there are some things that we're going to value that people that are have not entered into the faith of Jesus Christ don't consider to be very valuable at all. And there are things that they will value that we don't consider to be as, as valuable. There's going to be a difference in values. But Christians should make an effort to walk as wisely as we can. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. If the world, if people from the outside... Looking in at the Christian faith would accuse Christians of folly. Let it not be the folly of laziness. Let it not be the folly of harshness. Let it not be the folly of of hatred. Let it not be the folly of bitterness. If if there's any folly that we can be accused of, let it be the folly of love or let it be the folly of generosity. Or let it be the folly of faith or the folly of holiness. But this is the way that we could walk in wisdom toward outsiders. So it should be a wise, a wise conduct, but also, also strategic. We see this in the latter part of verse five, where Paul says, making the best use of time. This means that we are to buy up the opportunities. We have an opportunity to speak the gospel. Take that opportunity, redeem the time. Paul is saying every moment of time is a piece of embattled territory that will either be won or lost for the gospel. So buy up every opportunity. That's how the gospel is advanced. And third, the gospel advances through the way we speak our conversations. Paul says this in verse six, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. You see, the word that's translated gracious literally is always in grace. So let the way you speak be informed by the grace of God. Right, we, we say this, we've been saved by, by grace alone. Okay, if we've been saved by grace alone, we should let our conversation be in grace alone. Well, what kind of, of speech could come out of the mouth of those who have been transformed by the grace of God? It should be gracious speech. Right? You have been shown grace that you don't deserve. Right? You have been plucked from misery. You've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of, of the, the, the Son of God. Right? This radical Life-transforming change has, has been taken place, and it's been all because of grace. Now, how is that going to impact the way you speak? It, it means that your speech will be filled with grace. What, what did God's grace do for you? It, it saved you when you didn't deserve it. What? How can you reflect that kind of radical grace in the way we speak? By kindness, by love, by sincerity, by honesty. And in this way, the gospel can advance. The gospel advances through the grace of filled speech of people who have been transformed by grace, the advancing of the gospel. Grace-filled speech will never be short-tempered, never be bitter, never be sarcastic, never be sloppy, never be self-seeking. Instead, it is, it is speech that is others-oriented, that is loving, that is kind. Let your speech be always gracious, but also Seasoned with salt. What does this even mean? Seasoned with salt. How do you have salty or seasoned speech? Some say that this has the idea of wit, or uh, maybe a speech that doesn't corrupt. We avoid corrupting speech. Those views have some merit, but most likely, however, this this idea of being seasoned with salt, it it, it is that that zest that emerges. When someone speaks and explains something that is incredibly important to them, right? When the, when the gospel is important to you, you're going to speak about it with a sparklet in your eye and with conviction in your voice. It, it, it's, it's what makes your your explanation of the gospel compelling and, and tasty, as it were. Uh, when, when, you, when you season a steak... It's not that the it's not that the nourishment comes from the seasoning, but it, it it makes the steak so much more enjoyable to eat. And that's what that's what we as believers should do with the gospel. Like if the gospel is is changing us, if it's transforming us, if it's if it's convicting us, if we are humbled at the love of God for us as sinners, that is gonna give our explanation of the gospel a natural zest, a seasoning that's gonna be compelling. And it's personalized, Paul says this, that you may know how to answer each person. This implies that people are asking. This implies that there is something unique. There is something distinctive about the lifestyle and the conduct and the wisdom of a person who's following Jesus that would compel other people to say, all right, tell me what's going on. And this can happen. This is how the gospel advances. It's interesting and significant that Paul himself asks for prayer that he may make the gospel clear. I mean, if the Apostle Paul needed prayer that he would clarify the gospel, don't we need prayer and the ability to clarify the gospel? I want to ask you some questions just as we close. Those of you who are viewing in your homes, you're members of this church or attenders, or maybe you've just got it online and you're, You're listening to a message because you want to hear some uh, some of the word of God this morning. Let me ask you some questions as far as regarding your communication of the gospel. First of all, do you know the gospel? Do you know that message that while we were enemies of God, separated from God, dead in trespasses and sins, as Paul puts it in Ephesians, that, that God, through his grace, Reach down by sending Jesus to live a perfect life and die a death so that his life could be ours and he could pay the penalty of our sin. I mean, do you know that gospel? Are you reviewing the gospel to yourself? Why do we need to review the gospel to ourselves? Because there is this gravity in our hearts that doesn't that that doesn't want to believe that we're as bad as the gospel says we are, and doesn't want to believe that we can be as loved as the gospel says we can be by God, right? There is this, there is this fighting in our own hearts that resists the truth of the gospel. My friends, that's why we must rehearse those truths over and over again to remind ourselves that we are we are worse off or more sinful than we ever knew. But because the gospel teaches us for more love than we could ever hope, that is the gospel. Do you know it? And second, do you believe it? it? does no good to know the gospel unless you believe it's true, unless you believe that that Jesus really did come to the earth, that He really did die for sinners, that He really did conquer death and and rise again so that He could give life to people and one day they will rise with Him. Do you believe the gospel? Third. Do you feel the gospel? Do you feel the gospel? And by this I mean, it. do the truths of the gospel so impact your life that they're giving shape to your attitudes and to your emotions and to your actions? What, what could possibly shape us more or inform our emotions more deeply than a story that a God loved us so much that he was willing to die for us? Are you feeling the gospel? How can you share something with conviction and authenticity that you're not yourself feeling? This can only be done as we meditate on deeply and remind ourselves of it over and over again. You know the gospel, you believe the gospel, you feel the gospel. The fourth question is this, do you live the gospel? Do you live the gospel? Like the gospel has, as we've talked about, has massive, comprehensive implications for the way we live. As the book of Colossians has unfolded, it has implications for the way that we view our our anger, our speech. Our, our, our approach to sex, our relationships, our, our community, uh, wives and husbands and, and children and parenting and employers or employees, positions of authority and power, positions under authority and power. are you living the gospel? Right? Is it informing the way that you work? Is it informing the way that you play the way you do relationships? because if you are not living the gospel, it's an indication that you are not believing gospel. Right? Living faith as we've looked at in our series in James Living Faith does should be active. My friends, those of you who do believe the gospel, we need to remember that when God wants to advance this incredible message, he does not give it through a script that is to be recited, but through lives that must be ignited. This is how the gospel advances. The gospel advances through ordinary people that have been saved by extraordinary grace whose prayers and speech and lifestyle are being changed in extraordinary ways. This is how the gospel moves forward. And this gospel has no boundaries. This gospel cannot be stopped by quarantines. This gospel cannot be stopped by by walls. God's word will go forward. And God decrees and God wills that it go forward through his people as they pray, as they live, as they speak. My friends, my gospel-believing friends, I urge this upon you. Take every opportunity. What what an extraordinary time we live in. It might be ironic to be talking about opportunities to give the gospel during a time when we're virtually confined to our homes, but oh, there are so many opportunities. This is a time when people are wondering. People are sensitive. You may be watching this right now, and for the first time, you begin to think about where, where your soul will spend eternity. My friend, you'll either be in heaven Or the Bible teaches us in a place of separation from God for eternity called hell. That's the truth of the Bible. My friend, the way to a right relationship with God, an eternal life, is through Jesus Christ who died on the cross so that anyone who believes in him can be saved. And those of us who believe the gospel, oh, let our lives be transformed by that gospel so we can give it to others.